Welcome back to Gender Power Justice. This is lecture 11, the second installment of our discussion on Linda Martine Alcoff's book, Rape and Resistance. We read a chapter called Norming Sexual Practices, in which Alcoff does a deep dive into some of the problems that I raised in the previous two lectures on Foucault's way of thinking about the relationship between knowledge and power and how some combination of knowledge and power creates what he calls a discourse and the discourse creates the conditions for the things that are intelligible to us the things that we can perceive what we can name and you know therefore what we can know and in the last episode of the lecture series I described some of the problems in talking about um sexuality and what Alcoff calls sexual violation in this way and this time I want to go deeper into this to see if Alcoff discusses some of the problems with the way the mainstream way of thinking about um, sexual violation to see if these match up with your intuitions about some of the way that we talk about sex and violation um, in the kind of public sphere, in the culture, as it were, and then to see if we can start working our way, at least in her view, toward a better way of thinking about it, or at least toward a, a starting point for a better way of thinking about it. It's not something that she develops, of course, fully in this one chapter, but I think she does try to say some suggestive things about how to avoid some of the pitfalls of what she calls the libertarian view of sexual liberation. Now, Alkoff um, singles out libertarian feminists to identify a particular problem with the way Foucault is being interpreted in much of the feminist discourse, at least in the U.S. Um, I'm not sure if it's as pervasive elsewhere, but something tells me that um, it's influential elsewhere as well. Um, if Foucault's influence in general is any indication. So the prevailing um, sort of standards for how feminists think about sexuality, sexual practice, sexual desire, pleasure, um, all of these things is one of a baseline libertarianism. Now the reasons for this also relate back to the generation in which the women's liberation movement or the um, the second wave, as it were, em emerged. This was similar, maybe shortly after, in the same time period in which Foucault was responding to all of the ways that the um, new left would talk about repression and sexual liberation. There was a feminist element to this. And the feminist element to this was to challenge the idea of the normal. And they found Foucault very um, inspiring for this because lots of what we consider to be normal, as in the idea of like the the normal human, right? These are it's a it's a category that creates exclusions inherently into defining itself. So there was this idea of like normal sexuality, which was heterosexist and sexist in general, like per certain ways of portraying female sexuality, women's sexuality, um, that um, 
supported a particular script. So for example, the idea that men um, are the ones who entreat women for sex and that women are sort of passive and they either say okay or not okay or they don't have any sexual agency or desire. Um, These kinds of scripts were what were considered to be normal at one point and feminists challenged them and once the dam broke on kind of debunking the idea of the normal basically everything was up up for grabs every um, possible sort of sexual orientation um, orientation of desire even like towards objects maybe fetishes all of this stuff became available for for critique and of course there are I don't want to reduce all of these debates to like this one position that she calls libertarianism. I want to be clear that actually not all feminists always agree on every issue. I think in a previous episode I mentioned the sex wars in the 80s and 90s among feminists who were anti-porn or pro-porn, pro-you know, sex positive, sex negative. There's always been internal debates. But what Alcoff points out is that the kind of main thrust of not just feminism, but like liberal culture in general, has been toward an idea of sexual libertarianism, which is basically like, I'm going to do my thing, and as long as it's not hurting anybody, you can't judge me, and I can't judge you. So as long as we don't um, violate any conditions of consent, and we don't abuse people, we don't hurt other people, then like, anything goes. Um, and she, and Elkoff is responding to a particular foundational document written by Gail Rubin in 1982 that basically argues, um, kind of for the, for the position that at the time was very radical and extreme, you know, like, um, she argued that not only were homosexuality, transsexuality, being transgendered, um, kink and fetishes, all, Um, just discriminated against in the same way that people of different races and ethnicities were being discriminated against. Um, Also included in this umbrella set of categories of things that were um, being unfairly discriminated against included um, cross-generational sex and and pedophilia. Um, So these are all Um, discriminated sexual minorities so her point of view was simply that we see pedophilia as something that's taboo or at least um, sexual relationships between children and, and adults but actually if you take a look at what Foucault writes about children and their sexuality this is based on a denial that children have a sexuality or that they have sexual agency and we're basically not acknowledging that this is an orientation or that there can be any expression of it that can be positive and um so there 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 was a push to basically open the floodgates against um of, of all of the things that we considered to maybe be morally questionable. And in this view, what Alcoff calls sexual pluralism, consent is really the key. So you might ask yourself, okay, I'm also uncomfortable with pedophilia. What's the difference? But if you're telling me, Gail Rubin, that this, there could be, uh, that this isn't a, a 100% prohibition, that maybe we are, um, making something taboo or we're discriminating against something and we're you know really that's our own biases and we should reconsider it like 
what's the difference between a good thing and a bad thing? Like how do we look at one relationship and say, yeah, that's okay and something else is not okay? Or likewise with um, maybe role play or fetishes or kink. What's the difference between actual harm and violence and abuse and um, what we consider to be appropriate and expressive and fun or um, experimental? Well, the answer of the libertarian uh, feminist sort of way of doing things is that it's always consent. So everything is acceptable as long as there's consent. And the and they also tend to argue what Alkoff is talking about is that the preoccupation with these things, like um, the, the worry that there's too much abuse or violence or um, too, too much negative stuff happening in our private lives is like actually a moral panic that we're not doing enough experimenting there's not enough fluidity there's not enough pluralism and actually it's kind of the forces of um reaction or even like traditionalism um that are trying to prohibit sexual pluralism from emerging and therefore they're creating a moral panic um which is not real Okay, so if you're listening to these arguments in 2021, what Alkoff says is that this is actually probably doesn't sound that radical to you because there has been a discourse along these lines for some time. And she even says that what was once really provocative and radical probably seems kind of ho-hum. And importantly, our intuitions that there are boundaries that we actually want to talk about when it comes to sex have not gone away. So consider the Me Too movement. It might be the case that people are reflecting on their experiences differently than they were before, or new discourses are emerging to be able to name and describe experiences. But this is all very normative, you know, like we're saying basically what we think is harmful and not harmful, what in her words counts as a violation or not a violation. So despite the fact that there's a kind of default libertarianism in the culture, um, we continue to have debates about not the normal necessarily, but the normative, right, the morality of these things. And Alkoff thinks that like we shouldn't be shying away from that because it seems to lead us into dubious moral territory, you know, against our better instincts and against indeed what survivors and victims of sexual violation say they experience. So that part of it is something that she wants to reckon with. I'll put it like that. Um... And she thinks that this libertarian attitude towards sex is actually part of what creates the contradictory and conflicting messages of a culture that she in the introduction said is confused about sex. So it's the kind of re- uh, re- re- rejection and refusal to, th- to think about um, norms and morality that creates this contradictory messaging and this confusion because norms are conflated by libertarians with the category of the normal, which is something that you always are going to have to have deviations from and that um, has historically oppressed sexual minorities. So she wants to diagnose how Foucault has had an influence on the libertarian um, sort of mainstream 
um, way of thinking about sexual liberation in order to see some of the shortcomings of this interpretation, to see if she can have a better interpretation and to kind of steer us in a different direction. At least that's her hope. So she wants to look at both Foucault's influence and then some ways in which she thinks that Foucault has been misappropriated for uh, libertarian ends. But first, the stuff that is obviously of influence and and in some ways um, provocative and interesting, the anti-realism of libertarianism. So the idea that taboos, normality, sexual morality, including prohibitions against pedophilia and rape, are simply discourses that reflect a configuration of knowledge and power that um, is the product of paternalism, whether it's in psychiatry, parenting, or the law. This is straight out of Foucault. You know, the idea that the harms that are there are not really there or they only emerge in our discourse and that we're engaging in a moral panic if we think there's tons of abuse and uh, violence going on Um, it seems like a way of clamping down on sexual pluralism that that conclusion that is reached is certainly rooted in Foucault's um, ideas about what how discourse creates its own object and derivatively it's the troubling of the alignment between sex and truth that is of um, descent from Foucault's ideas. So the idea that there's nothing really objectively right or wrong, but also that sex doesn't reflect any inherent truth about ourselves, like, um, and this is something Butler takes from Foucault as well, that because we're always produce, like power is generative as opposed to repressive, it's not something that we're... Um, suddenly freeing ourselves up to express we're always kind of creating ourselves anew Um, and that's as true for sexuality and um, our understanding of normal sexual behavior as it is for gender identity and performativity in Butler's um, perspective so Foucault also argues that we're talking too much about sex not that we're talking too little and um, it's not prudishness, it's actually obsession with sex that is the kind of distinctive thing about modern sexual morality, or at least during the Victorian period. And he calls our generation, we, uh, other Victorians, the new Victorians, he thinks that we're doing it again. Um, the, the, the conclusion that a lot of the libertarian ethos takes from this is that because we can't, there's no you know inner essence of sex or sexuality there's no objective moral truth and therefore we should stop constructing theories of sexuality and sex and right and wrong within that sphere because anytime we do that we're always setting up a new way of excluding and disciplining and so on so we should just stop trying to create universal norms so there's a rejection of the normative along with the normal Um, and I think in the chapter Alcoff titles this section in which she discusses this the case against norms and I think that if you've been around um, discussions about like that are kind of influenced by maybe just postmodernism in general 
Foucault is a big influencer on this, but it's, you know, pretty steeped into people's common sense at this point that um, it's kind of like norms are bad because norms are the things that are always exclusive. And the only way out of this is to basically say anything goes so long as it's uncoerced and there's consent because we have to kind of get out of the bad power matrix and we're always recreating exclusions and the only way to not do that is just to kind of not look too closely at it to just say you know live and let live do your thing unless you're harming someone the problem is that the idea of what counts as consent and what counts as coercion is really contestable and this whole way of thinking about sex and sexuality from the libertarian perspective, actually relies on not interrogating that too much. Um, And so, like, what Alkoff notices is that there's a strange lack of criticism of these concepts because if you just say everything goes and we're not going to put norms on our sexual lives, we're not going to normal, nor not we're not going to normalize and we're not going to make norms, it means that... You kind of you have to have a boundary because you know that some things are morally wrong. At least our intuitions lead that way, and most people feel strongly that there is such a thing as abuse or violation. Um, I don't want to say you know it's morally wrong. I should correct myself and say people have strong feelings and intuitions that it's there are things that are morally wrong. So you have to have some kind of boundary. And the boundary ends up being consent. So like it becomes a very c- contractual boundary. It's kind of like, okay, if you said okay or you'd said yes, then that's it, period. That's the only thing that is going to tell us about the rightness or wrongness of the situation. So it's not a substantive judgment. It's not a moral judgment. It's more like a legal uh, distinction that we we need to be able to make sense of harm. So it's kind of like it's a moral category, but it's not a moral category. And Alkoff says that if, if she's right, about the gray areas and the ambiguity and her reasoning for adopting the the idea of sexual violation to encompass a wide range of harms and affronts to people's sexual subjectivity, their agency, their will, their feeling that they can even create their own sexual identity or live their own sexual lives um, in a capacious way, then this, this idea of consent doesn't make sense. And what we've done now in the libertarian view is to overcorrect for in quotes the normal by avoiding normativity altogether and this is just from Alcoff's point of view unintelligible and she argues that this is actually a the libertarian perspective is a misappropriation of Foucault because in their view power only appears as a no as a restriction as a prohibition or even a form of repression and freedom is primarily negative so freedom is just the ability to do whatever you want it's not substantive support for example for being able to um, come develop your own awareness of your own desires to feel like you are able to ask for things to articulate um, your wants and needs your whether it's emotional or sexual or some combination of the two so the historical contingency of those wants and needs and desires 
actually gets left out of the picture because you can't talk about specific configurations of, of power between people and between groups. Um, and this is actually very un-Foucauldian to leave the power dynamic out of it. It means that you're not engaging in a very substantive critique of the discourses around sex in general. You're actually just endorsing, um, you know, saying you're, you're kind of declaring by fiat that this isn't of interest. So it's kind of like getting Foucault a little backwards. Um, and so it seems that Alcoff is sort of against the strong anti-realism, I think, of Foucault. It's hard to tell, actually, if I'm being honest. I'm not always sure how to interpret her because on the one hand, she endorses his basic premise on the relationship between knowledge and power and the creation of discourse. Discourse creates the thing, the objects that um, creates its own object and so we, we kind of discover um, concepts in the same time that we discover their objects. Well, she she seems to endorse that broadly, but I think she wants to push back against like the strong anti-realist argument that there's nothing, that there's like no there there for us to discuss um, because she would like to actually see more moral panic regarding, for example, child sexual abuse. She says this is real and serious. And the fact that she uses kind of words like real and she says like this isn't something, this isn't a discourse that got made up. This is, there are statistics and empirical findings about, you know, every so many minutes a child is abused or abducted or something like that. And she says like actually it seems that we don't care about this enough. We don't appreciate the scale of the problem. Um, and I, I think it's, it would be strange for her to say that if she thought that these experiences and these, um, th these problems when it comes to the way that we think about children and sexuality and abuse, if they were all reducible to the nexus of discourse in which they transpire, then it, that I think that her position or her feeling that there's really something, there's something real there to talk about um, wouldn't make that much sense. But I'd be interested to know on how, how you interpreted her position. I think it's a little ambiguous, but um, anyway, I think she's pushing back against the kind of extreme, maybe idealist position. So she thinks that what we need to do is to redirect our attention to um, the way that we construct um, the, the relations of power between people and especially the idea of pleasure, like what we take pleasure in, what we think pleasure is about, what arouses our pleasure. Often this is the result of some combination of eroticism and power. But what's interesting and what she thinks leads to some of these misinterpretations of Foucault or, or poor appropriations of him towards these sort of morally dubious libertarian ends, or I guess uncritical libertarian ends, is that he seems to leave pleasure out of the way he thinks about discourse. So for Foucault, it seems like pleasure is there in the background, and it's, it's just sort of a jouissance, like it's a it just flows freely and we sort of channel it in one direction or another. We're inhibiting it, we're directing it. Um, 
we're creating concepts about what we should do about it. We have ways of disciplining pleasure, but the idea of pleasure itself is never really challenged. At least that's Alkoff's way of interpreting Foucault. And this is important to her because if you recall, the first introduction, the introduction to the book talks about how she wants to collapse easy binaries between, um, rape and sex, right? Because she thinks that to get at the gray areas, you have to talk about um, sex and pleasure and, and rape because often rape doesn't take the characteristic of just a raw exercise of power and violence. If you want to talk about those more ambiguous circumstances of sexual violation, you have to talk about what it is that people find pleasurable, why they find it pleasurable, why people eroticize, for example, um, partners who are not responsive. Like she has this interesting anecdote, if you recall from the introduction where she talks about her own um, experience of being assaulted where she woke up and this boy at a party was having sex with her and she didn't consent but she also didn't say no and she wondered what is it about him that found pleasure in that situation she's reflected on that as an adult and many times since then and wondered what is it that makes somebody like desire somebody who's partly conscious or unconscious or is not even responsive but he did desire it and she wants to know why and so it's that kind of question that she thinks um, it would be useful to rethink the um, the idea of, of pleasure as it is mixed up in power to do what she calls a genealogy um, or a catalog of our own pleasures and she thinks that this means that not all pleasure has to be defended or protected and we need to be able to define sexual liberation in a way that is more complex um, and that allows us to think about how we we develop sexual subjectivity is what she calls it that thinks about pleasure and power is being mutually constitutive so and you can't do this just by yourself as an autonomous individual in a libertarian culture so this idea that seems to be implied by the libertarian view that kind of to each their own I do my thing you do your thing I have my desires I'm expressing myself um, and you do you and then we, you know, if, if our pleasures and desires match up, then we can do them together, I guess. She argues that if you think about socially, you know, pleasure as being something that's socially constructed in a strong sense, then what we have to do is rethink our relationships to one another. And that isn't going to mean that everything flies. So you can have a kind of radically constructivist way of thinking about sex pleasure and desire but when you add the element of power into it and whether or not people feel that they can act on their own desires whether or not they feel like they can ask you know ask for things or be asked for things whether or not people feel respected these are all the kinds of questions that you have to 
start asking when you talk about pleasure not as something innocent but as something that involves power and she argues that Foucault has helpful resources for thinking about this in his later career when he starts talking about um, technologies of the self um, which are it's a matrix of practical reason a kind of stylization of existence because he knows that the self is sort of constructed through through discourse and regimes of power, and so he starts talking about a way of um, stylizing one's own subjectivity. And this is often like criticized for really good reasons for being very individualistic. And again, it lends itself to this um, individualist libertarian view. But he argues that, or Alkoff argues that one of the things that you can get from this is actually just a more relational account of it, that we need to um, engage in techniques of expansive self-making with other people, which requires enabling others to have an imagination. Um, Because what power so often does is restrict the scope of what's intelligible. And she argues that what we need is to make our language more expansive, more imaginative, so that people have a much more capacious understanding of themselves and others. So I'll close here by saying that there is a way in which I find the kind of moves that Alkoff makes in this article or in this chapter very compelling. She, I think, appropriately picks apart some of the problems with the libertarian view and why it sends such mixed messages in the popular culture and why it misunderstands Foucault and doesn't have a good analysis of of power. I think what you don't get from Alkoff so much is and a diagnosis of power itself. She kind of poses this problem, um, but she doesn't resolve it. And so something to think about for our discussion in class is just what you might think are the sources of different ways of thinking about the relationship between power and pleasure. And how comfortable are we in challenging some of our own desires, right? So is it is it always the case that all of our desires are good? Do they all need to be validated? What is the right scope? So I think she opens this problem and she sets it on different footing than perhaps uh, feminists of earlier generations would have because she kind of absorbs all of these, um, the libertarian impulses you know, says that there's a justification and a basis for being worried about norms. But then she comes around and says, but we need norms nonetheless, and we have to challenge ourselves to think about them. Um, And it might be the case that when we start doing that, we'll find that we're in a different situation in which we start to create the structural conditions in which to experience pleasures anew. So what Alkoff does is try to turn the Foucauldian argument in the direction of world-making and world-creation as opposed to a rejection of the possibility of world-making and world-creation that she perceives in the libertarian view. 
All right, that's it for today. I look forward to our discussion. Thanks, everybody. Until next time.